Everywhere Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. And for those of you who are listening to this on the day we put up this podcast, happy 4th of July, happy Independence Day. To start off this audio celebration, I have a gentleman who saw a lot of America and who decided to write about it in a terrific book. It's called American Oz, An Astonishing Year Inside Traveling Carnivals at State Fairs and Festivals, Hitchhiking from California to New York, Alaska to Mexico. Well, that pretty much hits it all. Welcome again, Michael Sean Comerford, to the Fromer Travel Show. Well, thank you, Pauline. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic to be back. So you were basically a carny. When in your life did you spend this year doing that? I did this in 2013 and 14. Wow. And uh, I, I went, I worked in 10 carnivals in 10 states, working rides and games. And then because I was living on, hit, uh, living on carnival wages, I hitchhiked to places. Wow. Uh, when I wrote the book, I decided to make uh, travel and geography a, a character in the book. So there is a lot of beautiful scenery across Canada and up to Alaska and across the United States and down through Mexico. Wow. Well, what inspired you to do this? I was transitioning out of newspapers. I was a lifelong newspaper man working in New York, uh, Budapest to Moscow, Chicago. And I wanted to write books. And when I was a young man, I had come across a carnival and I thought, well, if I ever get if I ever get good at this writing thing, <laughs> I, I would love to write books about these people. They seem like great mysteries traveling on living life on the road. They have their own language. They have their own history. Uh, they're colorful people. And uh, I came to a cycle in my life where I was moving out of newspapers. And so for my first book, I decided to to write about traveling carnivals. And it has become an Amazon number one uh, bestseller since wow. last summer for about oh, 10 months. Oh, that's great. And I hope wow. it will be again this summer. Well, you know, I think of the summer as being carnival season, as when most of the state fairs and other types of fairs happen. But you said you did this for a year. Were there enough carnivals to go to in the winter months and the fall months and spring? There could have been. I, w <laughs> I went from uh, February till about October and uh, then I, w I did the uh, winter, the winter, they call it winter quarters, when most carnivals, not all, but most are, re you know, regenerating for the coming season, making their dates, uh, redoing their rides and things like that. So I did not work during the uh, uh, winter quarters. But now, when I think of of carnies, people who work in carnivals, I have a really ancient understanding of what they do. And it comes from the Rogers and Hammerstein musical <laughs> Carnival, in which yeah. the uh, main character is this kind of ne'er-do-well who runs the merry-go-round, seduces young girls, and has to be redeemed. And in those days, you know, to, to be a carny was to be somebody who lived on the edges of society and didn't have a good reputation. Has that changed? I mean, who were your fellow carnies? 
I love that same play. I love it. And oh, actually, it's, it's it had, a wonderful play. It yeah. had uh, some parallels to the life I was living because I knew a carousel worker who was a criminal, who was mm. a, a seducer of women, who needed redemption. And uh, <laughs> I, I actually worked, uh, that wasn't me, but uh, I actually worked carousels too. Uh, there are a lot of people living on, well, everyone is living on the edge of society. Not everyone's a criminal. But sure. uh, one of the things I wanted to address was uh, the, uh, I was a journalist when I started out, and I wanted to s- cover income inequality, the American caste system. And I mm. had some serious issues that I wanted to flesh out uh, about these people who I eventually came to understand were just people uh, looking for the same things we are all looking for, love and meaning in their lives, only they do their searching on the road. And right. so that's what I I. But I think the book the book has a lot of in it is the fleshing out of of really who these people are, whose business is to make other people happy. Well, are they lovers of the road? Are they nomadic? I mean, is yeah. that why they're in this or is it just a job? Well, I mean, you have some people who are born to it. It is a generational thing. Some people run away from home. They believe, you know, this is going to save them. This is going to be an exciting life. And uh, every one of them likes the travel. And uh, every season, they love going back out on the road. And uh, if you loved being a carnival worker, you loved the road. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's a a tough life. Um, And uh, Why? Because... One is the road becomes your home. And so at the end of the season, you don't, a lot of them don't have a home to go to. It's a tricky thing finding what, uh, something to do well in the off season. And uh, the pay is low. Uh, you can, you're, you know, you, most people draw on their week's wages like halfway through the week because they can't make it all the way. So they get half their wages on Wednesday and then the other half on Sunday. And uh, and and so what happens when they need health care, when the tooth aches sure. or yeah. when they, you know, they get in an injury or when they drop their cell phone? Uh, they were living that close to the edge on uh, financially. Uh, that is uh, that is very difficult. And mm-hmm. so um, th- how do they manage a family on that? How do they manage, you know, falling in love and having children and right. and 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 all these things. And it was, it was a, it was a revelation. It was pulling back the curtain on, on who these people are. And, uh, I think I tried to make it a broader story about America also. And that's why I think it's great that this is on 4th of July because also, (laughs) right. Also in the last year we've had, I'm in touch with a lot of these people still. And in the last last year, they've had to find other work. Wow! And they haven't yeah, of worked at all, and now they're coming all coming back, and they're very excited about it. And uh, there's a lot; they're all fired up about it. Oh, and, how great! Yes. Well, in terms of what it showed you about America, uh, you know, I, I think of the traveling carnival as being an event that transforms the towns it comes into, and is 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 intrinsically American. 
Uh, is that a fair way to look at oh, it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, every one of these state fairs has a carnival aspect to it. Sure. And all these small towns, this this is the highlight of their year is that when this carnival comes to town. And uh, the American history is so full of of uh, stories and books about how when the carnival came to town, everybody came yeah. out. It was the center of their attention and uh, and and their community. And yet these people are not part of your community. They're, they're, they're going to be gone and, and they're going to disappear in the middle of the night uh, and go to the next town. And right. yes, it's, it's very interwoven into the, Amer the American experience. And the book is considered Americana. Uh, it, it's one of the classifications for the book. Ah, interesting. But, uh, yeah. Now, a lot of people are going to be taking road trips this summer. Is there a certain carnival or state fair that they should make as the point of their road trip? Is, are there any that are so great that you saw that, that really tower above the rest that, that people should make specific road trips to go and experience? Well, I... Uh... I cannot. I cannot do. That's like naming your favorite child. <laughs> I, I can tell you, if you're up Give in Alaska, try to get to those Alaskan state fairs. There's two of oh, them. Wow. There's one in Palmer and there's one in Fairbanks. And if you're anywhere near Iowa, that's the most famous state fair. But the biggest state fair in America by daily attendance is the Minnesota State Fair, which I worked huh. in. The, and the biggest, the biggest one by total attendance and by length of it is the State Fair of Texas. And, uh, and yet the New York State Fair is legendary. And, and uh, I didn't even know we had a State Fair in New York. I live in New York City, which is probably pretty far from where the State Par Fair happens. Well, I want to hear a little bit of more details about some of those. First of all, is bigger better? Should one go to the biggest one? Well, uh, for a carnival worker, uh, it's it's the big time. Is is uh, huh. the two big times are Minnesota and Texas, and they are uh, the best. They are crowded. The most it, they have the most rides. They have the most games, and uh, they're very exciting and very accessible. And um, and Minnesota, I think I have the statistics in the book, but. They have an, the same. They have a an attendance that's roughly the size of the whole state that wow. visits, visits it. So I'm mean, really into it. And so in Iowa, of course, uh, you know, is uh, is famous because of the movies and and the and. Uh, but they're all fantastic. They're well, all. Well, tell me, tell great. me why you started with Alaska. Is it because you have the option, you, you go to the fair and then you get to travel in Alaska, which is eye-poppingly beautiful? Or, oh, yeah. or what is it about Alaska? Yeah, I mean, in Palmer, you have the mountains all surrounding it. And, and mm -hmm. even though it's winter, the, the mountains are are uh, snow-capped. And in, in Fairbanks, you have a population that is substantially native Alaskan, so Eskimo. And uh, it, you're really meeting the real Alaskans when you get up there. And, and, uh, and so you're, you're not only seeing the state, you're seeing a microcosm of the state when you go mm. to these state fairs because they're substantially uh, agricultural. Right. They have a lot of, they grow a lot of stuff and they bring a lot of livestock. And, uh, 
So you're meeting the, the comp- people for 4-H competitions? Right. Right. Yes. They have yeah. big barns and people they have they have their food baking competitions and then they have their their livestock prizes that they hand out for hogs and and uh, horses and and uh, cattle. Right. Right. I went a couple of years ago to a a fair that I don't think had any real rides to it. I mean, it had pit spitting competitions because it was the <laughs> National Cherry Festival uh, wow. in Traverse City, Michigan, which was wow. a ball. So, so much fun. Wow. Are there any state fairs or uh, or carnivals that do things a little differently that, that are very unusual in what they do? Oh yeah, I mean in Alaska, what what do they have? They have uh, it, it. It all has to do with the town. Whatever town it's in, the the uh, the carnival comes to and they adjust to it. And the and the towns all you know every little town in America seems to have something that they're famous for. Huh. And then they have their their uh, whatever they're famous for. They have a little competition around it. Right. And, and then <laughs> the rides, the, the, the carnivals come to town. So you have also you have a Ferris wheel and a roller coaster and a merry-go-round and and uh, and some prizes. So it really they they fit into whatever the personality of, of your town is. They fit into it. Yeah. So if you're famous for. I know that I know one town in Illinois is famous for uh, the. Popeye the Sailor Man, the the original, the original um, Popeye the Sailor Man was a real guy and a a cartoonist grew up and based his whole strip on it in Chester, Illinois. And now they have Popeye Fest and they have. So the carnival comes to town there and and people have they have spinach eating contests. (laughs) So that cherry, I'm surprised there wasn't a a carnival there for that cherry, that cherry eating festival. No, uh, well, they have they have lots of booths with every single product ever made from cherries. Some really (laughs) weird things, too, that you'd never expect. And they have uh, music every night and. The year I was there, the Blue Angels did an air show, and wow. you know it was it was it was very very cool. I'm surprised I, that a carnival didn't take advantage of that, and and the, the, but they're crisscrossing mm-hmm. America, and these people are not anachronisms. Uh, they they are. I had a book club just write me yesterday saying, "Hey, look, we're going to the we're going to the Maine State Festival." Huh. Uh, State Fair. And what should we say if we meet a carny? And I said, well, tell them, welcome back. We missed you. And they'll love uh, you for that. And uh, Oh, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, they're, well, they're you, amongst when, us, and yet they're a world, they're in, living in a different world. Yeah. No, when I was in my early 20s, I toured the country with uh, Les Miserables. I was a singer back then. And we we kind of compared ourselves to carnies, but it, you know, because it you do become this community that travels. Well, they compare uh, themselves to you. Uh, they <laughs> they would they were they consider themselves a lot of them consider themselves showmen and show mm-hmm. people. And uh, some people, some carnival people, don't like being called carnies. Mm-hmm. Some are very proud of it, but interesting. Uh, they all consider themselves to be in show business, and that's why. Uh, the men are kind of successful with the, the, the local small town girls because uh, the, so the that's small not town... just in the musical that that's no. a, that's a thing. The wow. Small town girls they see they see this is uh, their ticket out to a more exciting life and this is show business 
And uh, and a lot of kids that run away. That's one of the themes, too, in the book. Yeah. You don't have to read this book for the serious themes. It's fun and adventurous and geographic, but it, it has deeper themes. But one of the themes is that there are a lot of people that run away and they're leaving unhappy homes for this fantasy world of entertainment. And so and people these- still do run away to join the carnival. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Like the old running away to the circus, a lot yeah. of people. You would I, I Yeah, it, it was it was a large percentage of people who had run away from home, often a very unhappy home or a foster home. Right. Or yeah. Now, one of the things we cover every summer here uh on fromers.com and uh, on this podcast is what's happening at the theme parks and there seems to be like an arms race each year to get bigger, to get faster, to get scarier. Have carnival rides changed significantly in the last decade or two? Or not really? Because I would think they they, they can't. They have in that a million-dollar midway is nothing now. In the old days, they were kind of ticky-tacky. You'd see uh, old TV shows about carnivals going around, and, and they're in, like, wagons or something, and... But no, now they, they have these uh, high-tech rides that are made in Germany or made in Holland or made. Huh. And, and they come from around the world and, and they are very high-tech and uh, using LED lights. And, and you've got midways that are paperless, I mean, uh, cashless. So huh. you, you're just given a card and you wow. can go from game to game. And then uh, you don't have to, you, you pay for the card up front before you go in. And uh, they scan them at every game and at every ride, and so and they're going to get more. So in in in, uh, in China, there are companies that are developing ways of of three D printing rides. <laughs> so huh? they're gonna they're they're. Uh, I think in the future we're going to have AI and uh, you know artificial artificial intelligence, and we're going to have. All sorts of high tech things in the future. I think that actually freak shows, which are are fewer and far between, sure, uh, and sideshows these days. I interviewed the king, of the last king of the sideshows, Ward Hall, for my book. But I think in the future, if we have freak shows, they might be people who are merging with machines. They'll be the people who are part part computer, part wow, uh, human. Huh. <laughs> Fascinating. I think the future of carnivals is really is really uh, tied up with. I think you have a Netflix show there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, well, Michael, it's been fascinating and makes me want to run out to the nearest state fair. Uh, thank you so much for coming back to the Frommer Travel Show. Really appreciate it. It's my honor, Pauline. Thank you so much. With our next guest, we're going to leave the topic of Americana and move back to the ancient world. I have I have Feral Monaco on the line now. She has a terrific website called Tavala Mediterranea. But more importantly, she has a fascinating specialty. She is a culinary archaeologist. 
Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you. Thank you, Pauline. It's lovely to be here with you. So how does one, and am I calling it the right thing? Is is it culinary archaeology or or what would you say your title is officially? Uh, Experimental archaeologist, culinary archaeologist, Roman food archaeologist. It sits somewhere in, in the middle there. And how does one study those things? I think most of us, when we think of archaeology, we think of things made of rock and maybe every once in a while wood, but when there's organic matter involved, doesn't most of it just disintegrate? How do you find out what people ate thousands of years ago? Well, um, thanks for that question. I'll start with describing kind of how I got into it. And then I'll um, discuss for a couple of minutes about the nature of preservation when, when we hit a gold Perfect. spot, we're actually able to, to find preserved food, uh, food items. So initially, what got me interested in this was uh, working with teams at Monte Testaccio in Rome, for example, or at Pompeii, which were focused on kind of traditional areas of archaeology which tends to be sort of right-brained or male-focused is where we're, we're studying trade and economy, hmm. uh, pottery, right. structure, uh, technology, etc. And this area of archaeology also tends to use uh, secondary, complementary sources of evidence like, like the written word or the, the writings of Pliny, for example, or, or Petronius's Banquet of Trimalchio. And this is always kind of a focus that is centered around the 1%, the elite. And I actually Hmm. wanted to know more about the average Roman, more about how these technologies worked. How does a mill work? What were the kitchens like? Um, They were these small cramped spaces that often didn't have ventilation. So did did the did the the slaves that worked in the kitchens or the women that worked in the kitchens, they smell like wood smoke all the time? What was their clothing like? What did the food taste like? So I wanted to know about the sensory aspects around Roman food, and I wanted to experiment with recreating it using reproduced technologies and pottery that could get me close to understanding what life was like in daily Rome by using more than just my eyes. I was using my taste buds, my arms, my hands, my back, etc. Wow. So it got me much closer to interpreting daily life in Rome for the average daily Roman, the working Roman, not the 1%, which is what we read about in um, the literary record. And so when we have incidences or evidence, such as what we find at Pompeii, for example, which is, um, you know, it, Pompeii, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disaster site, right? So we're, right. we're dealing with a devastating eruption that took place in 79 AD, but what it left archaeologists was um, just a fantastic body of evidence to study. And a lot of it was preserved perfectly because of wow. carbonization wow. and in some cases, um, like oxygen-free environments. So you have um, so much of it that has been preserved for 1,700 years until you know the looting started and various phases of excavation started from the 1,700 forward. But um, right. Right. we have such a fantastic body of, of, of archaeobotanical and zoological plant remains, animal remains to study and to look at human diet and um, get a closer understanding of what Romans ate. So this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. I eat it, sleep it, breathe it. <laughs> um, and I love it. And it tells me so much about what life was like during this period of time during the Roman Mediterranean. Well, I think what our listeners might need to know is that in the case of Pompeii, 
as you said, it was discovered in the 1700s before they knew anything about how to preserve an archaeological site. And so I know that the noblemen who discovered it, they, they, they hacked off some of the best sculptures and brought them out of the site. Uh, so you're in, in best luck when you get to do a new dig. And that happened recently in Pompeii where they found an old tavern. How how much does a discovery like that uh, expand your knowledge? Uh, you're absolutely correct there. I'll, I'll um, cite Dr. Penelope Allison, who um, iterates continually that this this idea that we all have about Pompeii being a time capsule that was frozen in time is not the case at all. It was it was right. looted, as you mentioned. There there was um, quote unquote excavations that took place um, where uh, precious metals and objects of value were taken out that were placed in the homes of the wealthy during the 1700s. It was never recorded. We never knew where um, they were coming from. And then we, it, there, with much of this uh, evidence that's um, that's you know in collections right now, we're not able to place the locations, the context that they were excavated from. So we suffer in that regard. And you're correct though when you say that in new excavations that are taking place under uh, the new uh, offices. Um, over the last, you know, couple of decades, things have been much more precise um, in the recording, the excavation, and the processes of removing um, the remains. So when we have this stellar example, like the Popina, the, the the restaurant that was found in Region Five, it gives us so much more information, and it absolutely destroys some of the assumptions that we've mm. made in the past. Mm. Um, Assumptions such as the poor and the working class of Rome only ate porridge. Mm, nope, that's not the case. <laughs> that is not the case. Thank goodness. I'm glad to yes. hear that. And so when we look at uh, the archaeobotanical finds that were excavated at this Papina, and so what do we know about Papina? We know that they were social environments. They were centered on communal dining or street dining. You would go in, you would get your your food, and you would eat it either standing up there or at a small table or out in the street front while you were on your way to what it uh, what it was you had to do that day. So, you know what we hear a lot in lectures and we read a lot in publications about Roman food is that pulse or um, a wheat or farro or spelt porridge was um, consumed mainly by the working class and was complemented with fruit, uh, vegetables, or sometimes meat. But what we discovered in this Pompina, mm. when I say we, of course, I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about the archaeologists that were working there. What they discovered was that there was a high amount of animal bone contained, animal and um, uh, fish and seafood, sea, um, crustacean uh, material that was left wow. behind in the dolia that are are built into these masonry bars, which suggested that the items that were being sold there did contain a fair amount of seafood and meat. And the artwork that was painted, the frescoes that were painted on the sides of the bars showed um, various animals that were most likely being sold on the premises, um, either for takeaway or as a part of um, the, the stews or the broths that they were making on site. So when we know from the ancient literary references that Popina were working class, because in many cases, if if you were caught in one and you were wealthy, you would you know you would be questioned and frowned upon because it was the, the it was really? it was the wow. hangout of the working class, and the working class were eating meat. 
So that's the beauty of these new finds and the, um, the slow collections and records um, taking processes that they're using now to make sure that we understand um, what uh, artifactual evidence came from which locations and which context. Right. right. So we know that they were eating much more protein than we realized. And, and, and you would think those ingredients were more expensive than we would have thought a proletariat would get. How closely related or how distantly related is the food of, of Italy today? And I know that pasta came in from Asia, but in terms of other things uh, that, that uh, are currently on the Roman menu or the Naples menu, is there anything that, that you can say, oh, wow, they were eating this in Pompeii and they're still eating this today? So um, that's a beautiful question. And the continuity of Italian culinary culture that is derived from, let's say, the classical Greek and Roman period is a, is a beautiful thing to behold in the modern culinary culture. Um, pasta aside, which um, we believe was brought in with the Arabs during the Arab expansions to the south of Italy. When you go further mm. back and you look at some of the carbonized um, archaeological remains of food or in some, well, no, they're carbonized in the south as well in the, in the colonies. There are bread remains, for example, um, in Puglia, in a ritual context or an altar in Oria. Dr. Primavera writes about a tarallo that was excavated, and that's like a taralli. It's the unleavened ring-shaped snack cracker that is sold all over the world now. Um, but it's made. Wow. Uh, it's been made by generations by the nonne in the southern southern Italy and Puglia. It was found in a ritual context, made as an offering to the gods uh, during a time when the Greeks were colonizing the south of Italy. So to look at this one example, and so let's say, you know, we go to the shops and we go to the deli and we pick up some cheese and oil and bread for dinner and we get a bag of taralli or taralini. We are eating something mm -hmm. that was offered to the gods 2,600 years ago, but rarely wow. do we think about oh, that. Oh, that's beautiful. It, it is beautiful. That's amazing. It really is. And the same can that's be said about, um, the same can be said about fiki cucchiati or fiki copiati, the coupled figs. These were found carbonized at Pompeii. Now, chances are they were just drying. So when you dry a fig, you split it down the middle, but not all the way, and you pop it open and you mm -hmm. leave it to dry on a cane rack or a canizzo. And these were carbonized and found at Pompeii, and they're made exactly the same in Puglia today in southern Italy. Now, this is like the continuity in Italian food culture and, and cooking that is still very much present because they have maintained these traditions in their families generation after right. generation. And I commend them for it. It's just, it's just gorgeous. So, so you can go to Italy today and taste foods like the ancient Romans used to eat, but you were talking about the more male side of archeology, span which is always invested in buildings and trade routes and political uh, dynasties and that exactly. type of things. Because of these trade routes, we know that a lot of Roman culture and Greek culture was exported to different parts of the world. So could you be in Syria or in 
uh, the British Isles or in other parts of the world where the Romans and the Greeks went and also find these foods that were that were prevalent in ancient Roman Greece? I, I would think so, absolutely. But again, it boils down to the nature of preservation. So I would safely say that, you know, mm. uh, when it concerns organic materials like food, uh, animal remains, plant remains, the chances of us finding remains that are 2,000 years old from the height of the empire is quite slim. But when we do, it's golden. It really is. And when you think about the empire, though, so the expansion of, of the republic and then the later empire, it is it encompasses such a massive land, uh, a massive territory from, uh, uh, you know, almost to, to uh, the north of Scotland or mid-Scotland, the Antonine Wall, all the way down to North Africa, all the way eastwards to India, westwards to Spain and Portugal, for example, the UK. So we also have to be mindful of the fact that when we talk about Roman food culture, we're not just speaking about the Italian peninsula. We're speaking about sure. diverse areas Sure. where uh, food culture was transferred between neighboring areas, then it was taken uh, to far-flung areas of the empire by um, importing and exporting um, amphorae, for example, the tall conical ceramic containers that were used to transport foods. So we have to consider that through contact, through trade and warfare, also came the transfer of cultures. But then there's also the physical transfer of the food products that would move all around the Mediterranean as well. And the most beautiful way to find evidence for that is through the ceramic remains of amphorae. Mm. Well, back to what real Romans ate. I know that you have cr uh, recreated bread. There's their breads were it was it was a lot of low hydration. So they were making breads that were dense. They were incorporating lamentum, bean meal, for example which made the breads heavier, but it also made them healthier. There, you know, there were lighter, fluffier, fluffier loaves, like the Parthian loaves that um, were written, uh, that were described as having bubbles in them. So they, they liked a nice, mm. white, light, fluffy loaf like we do as well. But they incorporated ingredients into their breads that we don't go near today. And when I make them, I ask myself, why, uh, how did this get abandoned? Why aren't we making breads like this anymore? For example, Philostratus writes about um, the Panis Quadratus, which is the, the piece that Nat Geo just did on me last huh. month, which is about the Panis Quadratus, which is the loaf that we, um, that were, that were, ex the loaves that were excavated at Pompeii by Fiorelli in 1862. Very common. We see it represented in Roman art in um, bas-relief, and then it's also written about in um, uh, Greek writings as well. But Philostratus tells us that it also incorporated fennel, parsley, and poppy seeds. And so when you put all of those together and you taste this loaf that is, it's bulky, it's low hydration, it's meant to fill you up and it's meant to soak up mm. the broth, the wine, or the water that you're, you're consuming... Wow but it's so packed with flavor. It's beautiful. And wow. it, it really is. It's amazing. Um, and then, you know, Pliny tells us that the Romans grew git for use in bakeries. So wow. this tells us that commercial bakeries were producing breads for sale that incorporated git, which is Roman coriander or nigella sativa. And so when you make bread with nigella sativa, either fresh or seed in it, 
What a powerhouse. Just amazing. And I question why we don't cook with it today. Why don't we make bread with it today? Mm. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. few technical issues on that last interview. So I want to tell you that on Farrell's site, Tavola Mediterranea, she has recipes for the bread that was baked back in ancient Rome. Uh, and you can, you can find them there. She also told me that there are some bakeries around the world who are selling this kind of bread, which is very, very cool. So that's, that's it for today's show. We thank you so much for listening. As always, we hope you'll visit us as at fromers.com, as always. And to those who are traveling, and more and more are, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Change.